Enterprise. Wake up. Shake up your business. Welcome to the first Enterprise Breakfast podcast. Each week we bring you a little degustation menu from the breakfast show where we always try and give you some fresh and lateral perspectives on the world around you just to help you understand what exactly is going on as you go about your business. And you know, you can find inspiration in the most unlikely places. This week, let me take you to the world of cults. There are so many ways to describe a business transaction. Anthony Albanese over in China meeting with Premier Li Chung, freeing up visa rules, working on climate change, holding annual leadership talks. So much so, Li Chung, who's number two in China, to President Xi Jinping, called him a handsome boy. Making someone like you to do business so they'll buy your stuff. They call it soft diplomacy. But there's no use being nice if you don't deliver. That's what builders do all the time. Oh, yeah, they're really nice. I'm still waiting for the roof button. And you know what? If you crack the shits, they'll never turn up and you're over a barrel. That's a different kind of business, right? That one's called blackmail. And then there's the kind of someone will sell you the dream. A dream of how to be better, of how to win at life, make more money, get more sex, be more powerful, get closer to God, be more like me. People pay money to do courses, abandon families to follow rules, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy tickets, drink Kool-Aid to fulfil the dream. And that's just dangerous. And then, of course... There's the nice transaction where I've got what you want and we all just get on with it and resume our day. That's a bottle of milk. Not that you'd come into my shop if you didn't like me, even if I was a handsome boy. So when I say cults, what do you think about? Men in white robes, chanting, incense? Oh, no, no. Wait, that's church. Anyway, what might not come to mind immediately is a brand. But if you think about it, That's exactly what cults are. They're a brand, often with a charismatic CEO selling you a dream, and they're really good at it, and really good not just at taking your money, but at taking your life. So on this episode, I'm joined by my friend with benefit, the cult leader of Thinkabell, the advertising agency, Adam Ferrier, to look at what we can learn from cults about branding a business. Do brands start out deciding that they want to be cult-like. For instance, Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop. There are people who actually buy into the whole uh, marketplace nature of Goop, which is set up less as a shopfront store and more as a set of values from which if you participate, or even Mamma Mia at one stage, Mia Friedman's Mamma Mia, Mia deals more in news than she does with products. Gwyneth has products, vagina-scented candles, she has sex toys, she has... Uh, cashmere jumpers. So if you buy from Goop, as well as take your wellness advice from Goop, your recipes for bone broth, and you're a Goop girl, it's kind of your identity. It is. But both of those brands do have a strong female figurehead. And lots of there's an interesting book called The Culting of Brands, which says take or understand what makes a cult happen mm-hmm. uh, and then appropriate as much of that kind of stuff as you can and apply it to your business or whatever it is that you're selling. So what, what? So 
they both have strong figureheads, like a good cult would have a strong figurehead. They both have a strong visual identity. So cults have strong visual identity. They both have strong values. Is, that, is that a logo? Logo, but more design, aesthetic, rituals and behaviours that are kind of unusual. But they both have strong values and then they create in and out groups. So if you're not like us, you're wrong. Or if you're not using us, you're yeah, backward. Out. You're out in some kind of way. And then... If I clearly know what that stands for, so the goop stuff, the vagina-scented candle and all that kind of stuff, I know if I buy into that, then people are going to see me as a successful woman, then I buy into that. So and Gwyneth Paltrow somehow reflects onto me? Yes. So or, like when or Jackie I o- realise, I, I know that everybody else thinks that Gwyneth is successful and that's a kind of a cultural kind of standard understanding we all have. So therefore I use that her products, and I know that everybody else thinks that about me because they think that about her. Right. So So when Jackie O interviews Gwyneth Paltrow in Sydney to launch her new business venture, Besties, Besties. with her best friend, Gemma, apart from the fact that Jackie has transformed her physical appearance over the last 18 months with diet and exercise and beautiful clothes, Mm. and then she launches this new business venture by interviewing Gwyneth Paltrow, and apparently like 600 women stormed the convention centre in Sydney, all bought tickets, all drank Prosecco, all with blonde hair, all kind of looking the same, wearing variations of the same outfit. Is that a cult or cult-like behaviour? It's using cult-like behaviour without a doubt. The other interesting thing that Jackie O and Mia both have is they control the media channel. And through Gwyneth's fame, she's almost a media channel in her own right because everybody writes about her. So you can be cult-like and have all the principles of a cult, but you need to get your message out there. And so interesting, all the examples you're using have dissemination of their message really easily available. Which is what the internet gives you. Once upon a time, you were reliant on gatekeepers like... Yeah, that's right. ...print Kerry Packer and Kerry Stokes who owned and television. Isa. And, and that's right. And well, now we've got Instagram, DTC it's called. So it used to be B2B or B2C, uh, which is business to business or business to consumer. Mm. It's now DTC, so direct to consumer. So you don't need a middleman. Mm. You can operate directly to people. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? That's a huge transformation. It's massive. So everyone can start their own little mini cults and go nuts and screw the world or save the world, whatever you want to do. Mm. You know, thinking about the people in the world today who have cult-like followings, hordes of screaming fans who will follow them anywhere and hang off their every word, well, there's one person that immediately springs to mind. I know. It's weird. Taylor Swift and her cult-like fan base who call themselves Swifties. She sold over 70 million tickets to her most recent world tour and along with her multi-platinum album sales, those fans have made her the music industry's first billionaire. So how did she build her cult-like status? Kate Patterson is the founder of brand consultancy The Idea Cult and is also studying for a PhD on the impact of fandom. She's a certified Swifty herself, so fully qualified. Kate, do you think it was Taylor's intention to make people obsessed with her? Or was that something like a discovery she made along the way? I think for Taylor, we've seen throughout her career, you know, she's been in the industry over a decade now, and she has worked really hard to build up a really loyal 
uh, following uh, known as Swifties. And while I don't think necessarily her aim might have been for people to be obsessed with her, I think definitely she employs different strategies and communicates with her audience in a way that does build that type of relationship that we may not see with other pop stars, you know, in the same kind of way that she's managed to do over her career. Can you break that down for us? Sorry. Yes, it says something really interesting that she's communicating with the audience in a way that others aren't to help generate that. Yeah, so, what is that? Yeah, so there's a few different things with Taylor. Uh, the first is that she's always just made the time to connect, whether that's been in person or online. She um, does this thing called Taylurking, uh, which is where she basically stalks people <laughs> that follow her and, you know, comment on their posts, sends them money if they, uh, you know, are in hospital. She will laugh at their videos, duet them, do all these different types of things that sort of uh, encourages people to participate. She also has a unique reward system that she has with her management company Taylor Nation where she is known for rewarding fans so she will see people who have been posting about her online making costumes making up dances doing all of these things and she'll invite them to different experiences so for a long time these were called secret sessions where she would invite people to her house to listen to her album and sort of get to hang out with her she invites people backstage Um, obviously with the pandemic and COVID that's sort of heated off a little bit over the last few years. So there's this kind of element or this system set up that really encourages fans to participate to these sort of high levels that perhaps may not be as motivating for other fandoms that don't have this sort of level of engagement that's and reward system as that's, well. That's sort of in line with the cult-like behaviour, which is, you know, having people actually invest their personal selves in your vision of you. Yeah, and I think, you know, Taylor also is famous for her Easter eggs. She leaves lots of clues um, and different things within her music videos and everything that she does that also encourages people to sort of have that deeper level of engagement. They're looking out for the clues. They're theorising online. They're doing all these types of things. Um, And, yeah, I think that that can be a really positive thing in a lot of ways. People have found a lot of community and have constructed a sense of identity. But also, you know, at times having this many people support you can also lead to, you know, some, some negative sort of engagement online as well. So I think with any any group of this size, you always see the, the positives and the negatives. Yeah, it's interesting though because she is basically paying people to promote her and so she's paying people to promote her identity and it's working for her. It's yeah. fantastic and not a lot of harm has been done by that at all. And so who tells them that they've got, got it right or it just becomes part of the universal knowledge pool of Swifties? Is that a little bit like... There can be various mechanics on how that's disclosed. Were the Beatles doing that when it was like, turn me on, dead man, when he played Walrus, I am the rawest backwards, or Paul with his bare feet? Are they Easter eggs? Yes, they are. So it's been going on forever. Uh, but, uh, But the Easter eggs couldn't get spread... Back in the day, whereas now you're seeing, you know, the Paul with bare feet and so on, that is that can now be socially propelled rather than just be conversations behind closed doors, so to speak. So, do the Easter eggs always have to be like intimate personal information that you feel special to be privy to? Is that the key? Yeah, so there's different layers. There's certain things that, you know, if you're more of a casual fan, you just know some of Taylor's songs, you might be able to pick up on them. You know, she hid the word lover, which was her um, new album title in a music video, which was kind of an obvious one to pick up on. But then there are others where, you know, you you need to be in on the the, the Taylor lore, so to speak. And, you know, she'll pull obscure references from years and years ago. But um, I think to your question about whether anyone sort of validates it, 
you know, Taylor herself has come out many times saying that she likes to leave these clues and sometimes she she plants them, you know, two or three years ahead of time. There's a lot of planning. Hmm. Um, a lot of the time there are theories that the fans get wrong. Um, they call this clowning where they've, you know, been convinced that something's going to happen or that they've got something right and then, you know, the announcement won't come or whatever that might be. But then in other times they have been validated. So with the announce of uh, the re-recording of 1989, you know, Taylor had basically planned it so it was 1,989 days. You know, there were particular numeric clues and things that fans were theorising online and then at that concert in LA, which was the predicted show that she would announce it, you know, she changed all of her costumes to blue, which is the colour associated with 1989. And so fans could sort of see that their theorising had been correct and then she did end up announcing oh the album. So, it's like so, tra- yeah, it's transmedia storytelling where the audience is part of the message. Yes. So they are part of the brand. Can the equivalent still exist now for today where can you just be a stand-up celebrity and push your message onto the audience Mm. and not get them so involved and do all this? I think you can, but I think you are sort of limiting yourselves a little bit in terms of that participation. I mean, I think Beyonce is a really interesting case study when it comes to that. I think she's obviously got a similar level of fame um, and legacy when it comes to music, but she's sort of the opposite of Taylor. She doesn't give much to her audience. She obviously gives them a lot of music and some great content but she's not online engaging directly with people. She's not leaving clues. Yes, she still has a really successful career, but I think her fans act in a different way, perhaps. I don't know, cult-like behaviour, whether it be in the consumer realm or whether it be in the emotional realm, basically it's about belonging, right? And seeing... Uh, feeling like you are part of something bigger than yourself, giving you something to belong to and define yourself, should you not have the confidence to be able to walk that road of life as an individual and feel satisfied with that? And to get that sense of belonging into something bigger than yourself, that needs to be really, really clearly articulated so you know what you're getting into, which is where I find the, the relationship between cults and brands kind of into play. Because if that sense of belonging has clear signs and symbols, a clear doctrine, clear logo, clarity of what it is, then the more likelihood that I will buy into that thing or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So how do we exploit this discovery? What do we create if it was to be your cult? Well, I reckon the interesting thing about this is every single business, every brand, every single thing of influence is still stealing from the same pool of influence. And whether you use that pool to influence, to coerce, to manipulate, you're still trying to get people to do stuff that you want them to do. Right. And so as a business, for example, if I take our agency, Thinkabell, we have 101 rules of Thinkabell, which is kind of mock, but they're on the back of a toilet door. We have our rituals, we have our logo, our signs, and we we, we rebrand ourselves and we use our own language. They're all the same techniques that a cult might dial up to a million and use as well, and use them for bad. So we're all... So there's a line, there's a line that you cross between good and evil, or, Uh, or kosher and non- the level of intensity of how like we're not put, we're not doing sensory deprivation, we're not locking people away. So there's a level of intensity only on a big campaign. That's right. <laughs> Maybe you're right. But far out. That's it for now. But if you liked what you heard and can't wait until next week for more, you can tune into the live show on DAB Plus if you're in Brisbane, Sydney, or Melbourne, or online at disrupt.radio. Talk with you soon. Disrupt Radio. Tune in to Opportunity.